So Lord, as we come to your word, we pray that we would hear Christ speak. Speak to the depths of our hearts. Speak to our minds. Speak to our fears and our uncertainties. Speak to our pride and humble us before you in in order that we may receive your word and be strengthened by it. Turn our hearts to Christ at this time. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Psalm 47. We'll be continuing our study in the Psalms today. It feels like it's been forever since I've been up here. It's so good to be back up in the pulpit that I'm most comfortable in, most familiar with. Uh, We'll be looking at Psalm 47 today, uh, which is a fantastic psalm. Uh, a very timely psalm, as they all are. As we've gone through the psalms, we've seen that they are all extremely timely. Uh, if you need a Bible, by the way, we do have Bibles out in the foyer. Um, they're free for the taking. If you don't have one at home, please feel free to take one home with you. But we will be looking at Psalm 47 today. Uh, the title in, in my Bible, I don't know what your title has, but uh, the title in my Bible is God the King of the Earth. Again, what a timely psalm for us to study. You know, one of the things that you might sometimes hear me talk about when I preach is just the importance of having a high view of God. And that might lead some people to wonder exactly what I mean when I refer to uh, the importance of having a high view of God. What, What is a high view of God? What's a low view of God? I'd say that's actually the best place to start. Discussing what a low view of God is is a good place to start understanding uh, what I mean when I refer to a high view of God. A low view of God is, uh, as you might guess, an inadequate view of God. It's a view of God in which we bring God down a few levels as if we're able to bring him down a few levels. All we can do is imagine God to be less than he is. But that's what a low view of God does. It brings him down a few levels. It's a a view of God that makes God more like us, more like the things that we like, uh, affirming the things that we like, celebrating and loving the things that we like, hating the things that we hate. Uh, It's a view that ultimately neither fears God nor reveres God as God. And unfortunately, that view of God, the low view of God, has been the most common view of God for at least the past generation in our country. It was A.W. Tozer who wrote in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, back in 1961, so this is 51 years ago that he wrote this, he said, quote, The low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. And he goes on to say, Left to ourselves, we tend immediately to reduce God to manageable terms. We want to get him where we can use him, or at least know where he is when we need him. We want a God we can control in some measure. We feel the need, we need the feeling of security that comes from knowing what God is like. And what he is like is, of course, a composite of 
all the religious pictures we have seen, all the best people we have known or heard about, and all the sublime ideas we have entertained. End quote. That is the definition of a low view of God, where he's just like the best of us. A low view of God isn't concerned about anything that God actually wants. It particularly isn't concerned about how God desires to be worshipped and doesn't consider the fact that God has actually instructed us in His Word how He wants to be worshipped. A low view of God begins and ends with me, with you, with us, with the ego. How do we want to worship God? What type of worship music do we want to sing to God? What kinds of prayers do we want to offer unto God? How are we most comfortable worshiping God? And that is absolutely the worst place you can start when it comes to worshiping God. Starting with us. That's not where it starts. It has to start with Him. And so a high view of God is the very opposite of all all these things that I've mentioned. It rightly esteems God as the sovereign Lord and King and ruler of all things, the whole universe. It, it, It views God as being unrivaled in all that He is and in all that He does. It recognizes that truly there is none like Him in all of His ways, in all of His glory, in all of His attributes. There is none that compares to him, It views God as being holy. It views God as being a righteous king who rules over the nations supremely. A low view of God would have us approach God very casually, very flippantly, as if we're almost his equal, but just not quite. But a high view of God would have us absolutely crumble at his feet in recognition of how great and how awesome and how pure he is and how lowly and how defiled by sin and corruption we are. And so today we'll continue our study of the Psalms as we come to Psalm 47. Now you might realize that the psalm I preached last month was Psalm 45. And so you might be wondering, wait a minute, what happened to Psalm 46? Psalm 46 is one of the best psalms. It's the psalm that inspired uh, great hymns like a mighty fortress is our God. Uh, so why are, we, why are we skipping Psalm 46? Uh, and the reason that we have skipped it is because I actually did preach Psalm 46 uh, back two years ago when the coronavirus pandemic first began. Uh, Psalm 46 was a reminder of the fact that God is always in control. It's a reminder of how great and how mighty and how awesome God is, particularly in times when it feels like the world is just crumbling into pieces. And if you remember what it was like two years ago, when nobody knew exactly what was going to happen, they were talking about there being millions of people dying on the streets it felt like the world was just crumbling into pieces. So we looked at Psalm 46 back then. You can still find that on uh, the church website. But Psalm 47 
<clears throat> flows from the greatness of God that we saw in Psalm 46. Because Psalm 47 is a declaration of the fact that God, as the great and sovereign Lord over all the earth, is worthy of all praise and honor and glory. Every square inch of the universe belongs to Him, and He is sovereign over every molecule in the universe. As R.C. Sproul used to say, there are no maverick molecules in the entire universe. God is sovereign over them all. And that means, by the way, that He is also sovereign over all people. Uh, Every person is under God's sovereign rule and reign, whether they like it or not, and whether they acknowledge it or not. And and this is, of course, a great, great comfort to all who have a high view of God and who live their lives in willful and joyful subjection to His sovereign authority. But it's not only a great comfort. It's not only something that, that gives us great assurance that God's in control. And so all of His purposes and all of his promises they'll all be fulfilled it's also a reason to rejoice greatly and that's what psalm 47 calls us instructs us invites us to do the ten commandments begin with the command i am the lord your god who brought you out of the land of egypt out of the house of slavery you shall have no other gods before me Now, if we were to just read this text without applying any critical thinking and just ignore the testimony of the rest of Scripture, you might get the idea that that Jehovah, uh, that God, is just a God among many, as if there are many deities in existence, uh, but that the God of Israel, uh, Jehovah, is just the, the greatest among all the deities out there. Uh, Some might even read this first commandment and think that it's okay to believe in other gods. It's okay to to love and to serve uh, many gods as long as Jehovah is recognized and acknowledged as the first and greatest God. After all, he says, you shall have no other gods before me. But that before doesn't mean I, I need to be the first God among many. What it means is in my presence. That's what before means, as in You guys are all sitting before me right now. I'm standing before all of you right now. It's that type of before. So the idea that there are many deities out there is totally foreign to Scripture. The truth that Scripture presents us with is that there is only one true living God, while the other things our hearts are inclined to worship are simply idols. They're simply idols. The prophet Isaiah goes to great lengths to mock the worship of idols, uh, casting light on how stupid it is that a man would take a piece of wood, that he'd cut down a tree, take a piece of wood, he'd use half of it to make a fire to cook himself a meal, and then he'd use the other half to carve an idol, which he would then uh, worship. An idol that has a mouth but that cannot speak. God mocks that man, saying to him, He also prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. And we're supposed to get the idea that this is just completely stupid. And yet this is what people by nature 
do. You might not carve a little idol for yourself, but you are inclined to make things into idols. It was John Calvin who said the human heart is a factory of idols. We read in Isaiah 44, 7, God challenges Israel to compare their idols to him. He says, who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation. And let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. You see, so great is the true living God that He knows all things, past, present, future. Nothing is hidden from Him. And He can speak what is going to happen before it happens, unlike the idols that we're so inclined to give our hearts to. Unlike the created idols and the false gods of the pagan world, which had mouths and yet could not speak, the uncreated God of Scripture has no mouth, and yet He speaks with such power, He speaks with such authority, that things that don't even yet exist will leap into existence in obedience to His commands. That's how great the true living God is. There is none like Him. Now, if you look around at the world today, especially during a month like the current month, which the world celebrates as Pride Month, if you understand how much God hates pride, uh, period, just a period after that. He just hates pride. Uh, He he can, can honor somebody who will humble himself before God, but God hates pride. But when you look at the world and you see the way that this entire month is devoted to celebrating something that God has specifically said He hates, one thing is clear. The world does not like that God is God. And they do not worship God as God. And they are constantly trying to expand the greatness of their own rebellion against God's created order, looking for new ways to sin against God constantly. But Psalm 47 looks forward to a day in which all of the nations will submit to God and will worship Him as the people of the God of Abraham. James Montgomery Boyce notes that, quote, in this psalm we have an anticipation of that climactic moment in Revelation in which the nations will have been subdued before God. And we are told the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. That's from Revelation 11.15, end quote. So this psalm, Psalm 47 begins with the praising and worshiping of God as a great king over all the earth. And it starts with inviting all peoples from all nations to join the psalmist in praising and worshiping God. So we'll start with verses 1-4. to We read this, For the choir director, a psalm of the sons of Korah. O clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with the voice of joy. For the Lord Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdues peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chooses our inheritance for us, the glory of Jacob, whom he loves. One of the things that should strike us as we begin to read this is that it should never feel satisfying. It should never feel right to worship and to praise God 
all by ourselves. One of the reasons that we love the Lord's Day is because there's something that moves us more deeply and more profoundly when we worship with others. When we worship congregationally, when we worship collectively, rather than when we worship individually. There's just something powerful and moving, deeply moving, about hearing 40 or or 50 or 60 or however many voices lifted up and singing to God together. Something far more powerful than simply hearing yourself sing alone. When we understand who God is, when we understand how great God is, how worthy He is of our praise, how worthy He is of our worship, we should feel inadequate for the task of worshiping Him by ourselves. We should be eager to worship with others. We should be eager to even invite others to join us in worshiping God with us. And that's how this psalm begins, with an invitation, with an instruction to join in with the psalmist. Oh, clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with the voice of joy. All peoples. The the invitation is issued to all peoples. It's difficult for us to picture that, isn't it? It's difficult for us to imagine a day in which we can turn to all peoples and and say this, because at this point in history, very, very, very few acknowledge and live their lives in the truth of God's sovereign rule and reign. He is, nevertheless, their sovereign ruler. He puts kings in their high places. He establishes the steps of earthly princes and leaders. And He also is the one who casts them down and dethrones them. He raises up nations and He levels other nations. If you study world history enough, you'll start to see a pattern that arises around the world that many nations that are now very mediocre in terms of their power and in terms of their their influence, uh, were once great, great, very wealthy nations. I mean, look at, uh, look at Egypt, for example. Uh, we learn in Scripture and, and through secular you know, world history documents that, that once upon a time, Egypt was this great and wealthy country. In fact, they were the greatest and wealthiest country on earth. And yet in time... Eventually, they were weakened. Today, uh, according to U.S. News and World Reports, Egypt is ranked number 29 in the world in terms of their power and their influence as a nation. Uh, Another example, of course, would be Babylon. Babylon was a great nation that invaded and conquered countless nations. They were known and feared for their military conquests. Uh, But even the discovery of vast resources of uh, very valuable uh, oil in that region hasn't brought those countries together as one. It hasn't brought that region back to a position of prominence like it once had. Uh, Greece and Rome, likewise, they were once upon a time great nations that fell. So, so great was the Roman Empire, in fact, that even to this day, everybody, or most people, are familiar with the term, all roads lead to Rome. We know that. 
Because once upon a time, it was essentially true that Rome had built all these roads and uh, all, all these highways and byways, and eventually, if you, uh, if you traced them, they would all lead back to Rome. And yet, in time, Rome fell. Even Rome fell. In the modern world, in, in, uh, in my own time and many of your times as well, we've seen the USSR fall apart. Uh, and they were a huge, very powerful country, very wealthy country. And while there are still ongoing efforts to restore the USSR to her, her glory and her, her power, uh, they are still nowhere near where they once were on the world stage. Uh, U.S. News and World Report still ranks the United States of America as the most powerful and influential country in the world. But they nevertheless do make note in their review of the United States that uh, a crippling economic recession is expected to hit us very soon and that we are expected to fall from that top spot. From a religious perspective... That should not surprise us. From a religious perspective, while our country once had a very deep, rich Christian heritage, we now have kicked God out of classrooms. We've kicked Him out of courtrooms. And in a desire to to fill their churches, most churches have adopted this low, low view of God that I was just warning you about a few minutes ago. We can already see our country declining morally. We can already see our country declining economically. Uh, We see it declining socially. And why? Ultimately, because our nation has declined spiritually. If you study the polls, you know what I'm talking about. A few years ago, Ligonier released a study that showed that 6% of people who claim to be Christians actually hold to Christian doctrine through and through. 6%. 6% of people who claim to be Christian have the right to claim that they're Christian. Which means that 94%, not 94% of the population, we're talking about 94% of people who claim to be Christians. 94%, at the very least, do not have a biblical worldview. We are about to learn, as a people, what Proverbs 14.34 means when it says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. When a nation is on top of the world, when, when, when they're that number one country, It feels like they are just unstoppable. It feels like nothing could slow them down, that nothing could stop them or cause them to fail or to fall. But pride comes before the fall. And a nation that chooses to celebrate and to love the things that God hates and to hate and to chastise the very things which God loves, God rightly and justly judges and casts down such a nation. When a nation turns its back on God, kicking Him out of their courtrooms and classrooms the way that our nation has and the way so many nations before us have, God will bring them crashing down. Why? Look at verse 2 with me. Because the Lord Most High is to be feared, a great King over all the earth. 
The reason is because God rules. The reason is because God reigns supreme. Every earthly nation, every earthly king has authority, yes, but their authority is limited. God's authority, on the other hand, is supreme. God's authority is absolute. It's universal. And it is unthwartable. And this is why the instruction to praise and worship God is extended to all peoples. It's only extended to those whom God is sovereign and supreme over. And God just happens to be sovereign and supreme over all people. People, all people, should praise Him because He is to be greatly feared. Because He's a great King over all of the earth. Because He subdues people. Because He subdues nations. And because of the way that He lovingly provides for those whom He has chosen. Now you might say, well, here in this psalm it says Jacob. Uh, It says he he chooses our inheritance for us, the glory of Jacob, whom he loves. And you might be saying to yourself, well, doesn't the term Jacob apply to Israel? And the answer to that is yes. And so maybe you're thinking, well, we're not Israel, are we? So how does this apply to us? And here's the truth. You might not be ethnically Jewish, But being part of ethnic Israel has always been absolutely worthless. Being part of ethnic Israel is absolutely worthless. Do you remember what Jesus referred to the sons of Abraham who were chastising him as? Do you remember what he said to them? He basically called them sons of Satan who were like their father because they were liars. Yeah, these ethnic Jews. Uh, they, they weren't sons of God. They were sons of the devil. And this is where we have to remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 9, verse 6, where he writes, For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. And he'd go on to explain in chapter 11 that the Gentiles have been grafted in to Israel. Israel is thus likened to a tree. Paul says in <clears throat> Romans eleven seventeen, he says, some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive, that's a Gentile, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. See, there is ethnic Israel and then there is what you would call spiritual Israel. And of course, there, there is some overlap there. Some from ethnic Israel uh, are counted among sp- spiritual Israel as well. But God doesn't have two peoples. He doesn't have two different people groups that, that he saves, uh, you know, Israel and the church. He only has one people, and that's the way it's always been. And Scripture refers to his one people as Israel, commonly, or Jacob, meaning specifically spiritual Israel or spiritual Jacob. What grace that God would choose our inheritance for us as the psalmist reminds us of here in verse 4. What grace that He's the one who chooses our inheritance. When we deserved nothing but wrath, He showed us grace. Peter writes this. He says in 1 Peter 
chapter 1, verses 3 to 4, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Who chooses that inheritance? Not you, not me. God is the one who has chosen our inheritance. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 about the incredible inheritance of God's people. He writes of how we were chosen before the foundation of the world. Chosen to be holy. Chosen to be blameless before Him in love. Chosen to be adopted as sons and daughters into His family. Ephesians 1.11, uh, Paul says that we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined to His purpose who works all things after the counsel of His will. What glorious truths that God has given us and chosen for us our inheritance. Not that we would inherit His wrath, but that we would be shown His grace. So there's a sense in which our inheritance is in the future. That's the inheritance that Peter is referring to. Uh, It's undefiled. But there is certainly also a sense in which we have already received an inheritance. The inheritance that God, by His grace, by His mercy, has bestowed on us, even now in the present. And if you understand this, if you understand that you have been chosen for this inheritance... Your life should be marked not only by a desire to worship God and to give God all thanks and all praise, but you should also desire that all the peoples and all the nations would join you in praising and worshiping God with a thankful heart. Rejoice in God's awesomeness, family. Rejoice in His awesomeness. Rejoice in His goodness. Rejoice in His grace. Rejoice in His sovereign power and authority. And invite others to join you. That they too may know Him. And that they too may worship Him. You know when we start to get into trouble? We start to get into trouble when we don't recognize the blessings that God has already bestowed upon us. We get into trouble when we expect something more than God has promised. Something different uh, from what His Word promises us. We get into trouble when we think that we should be blessed by an easy road, an easy journey. A road marked maybe by things like health, or wealth, or prosperity, or popularity. The list goes on and on. You can have an infinite number of expectations of God that God never gives us in His Word. God doesn't promise us things like wealth. He doesn't promise us things like health or prosperity or popularity. In fact, He tells us that the world will hate us. But if you understand the frailty of your own flesh and your own inclinations in your heart to lean towards sin, you know to praise God that He did not put the responsibility of choosing your blessings in your hands. He's the one who blesses. And sometimes He does bless a person with health. But sometimes He blesses a person with sickness. Let me say that again. Sometimes He does bless people with health, but sometimes He blesses people 
with sickness. Now you might be thinking, Pastor, how in the world can you refer to sickness as a blessing? And the reason is because sickness is a reality, and God's people do get sick, and God is causing all things to work together. All things, every circumstance, every trial, every obstacle that we face to work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. Even getting sick, how can that be a blessing? What if, just stick with me for a second, what if being sick is what causes us to grow more in Christ's likeness than being healthy does? What if finding out how weak our flesh really is, remembering that our lives are not going to last indefinitely, remembering the fact that one day we will stand before our Maker, what if that causes us to desire God more and turns our hearts more fully to Him? Is that a blessing? Or it would be better that you be healthy and never think about the fact that one day you're going to stand before God. That's a curse. Health can be a curse. And sickness can be a blessing. Whatever your portion in life may be, friends, if you are in Christ, if you have repented and turned to Christ in faith, your circumstances, even the trials and the obstacles that you face, they are all specifically ordained, intentionally ordained by God for your good, that being your growth in Christ's likeness. Praise Him for that. You can praise Him for every single circumstance you face in life if you understand what God's Word says about every circumstance and God's sovereignty over every circumstance we face and the way that He uses them. You can be thankful for the good days and you can even be thankful for the bad days. Praise Him either way. Let's continue, verses 5-7. to The psalmist continues, God has ascended with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our King, sing praises, for God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a skillful psalm. Here we're told that God has ascended with a shout and with the sound of a trumpet. Uh, And there's a lot of ambiguity there. Um, Most commentaries, most scholars seem to think that this is possibly a reference to uh, the Ark of the Covenant and how Israel would carry it sometimes into battle uh, because it represented the power and the presence of God. Uh, We read in 2 Samuel 6.15, So David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the Ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of the trumpet. Now that might be what this is in reference to. It could be. I don't think anybody can completely eliminate that as a possibility. But the problem that arises from that interpretation is that there was only one time when the Israelites brought the Ark of the Covenant into battle uh, in what was really just a very superstitious move, kind of like how people... Um, you know, we'll, we'll get a tattoo of a cross thinking that that's going to bring blessing upon them. Uh, the ark uh, was captured by the Philistines when they tried it, and Israel was soundly defeated. And so I think <clears throat> the better interpretation of this is to see that when God steps in to save his people, as he did in Psalm 46, 
and as he did multiple times. Whenever God steps in to save his people, he must condescend. That is to say, he must step down from heaven. And when his work is completed, he ascends back to heaven. And in fact, this is what we see Christ doing, isn't it? Our greatest need was for him to save us. Our greatest need was for him to rescue us, to rescue us from our sin, which is always our greatest enemy, to rescue us from his just wrath against our sin. And that's what he did. He stepped down from his throne in heaven. He took on flesh. He upheld and fulfilled all the demands of the law, never once transgressing God's law, never once sinning. He was the spotless lamb. And then he died the death that you and I deserve to die. He died the death of a sinner. And as he did, he took our sin, the sin of all who believe in him, upon himself. And he credited his own perfect righteousness in exchange to all who repent and believe in him. He died. But on the third day, he rose again from the grave, proving that his work of redemption was complete and proving that it was pleasing to the Father and proving that it was sufficient. After spending 40 days with his disciples, what did he do? He ascended back into heaven, for he is now seated at the right hand of the Father, which indicates that the battle has been won. Victory has already been achieved. The king is in his seat. He's on his throne, ruling and reigning. Only when he's victorious can he sit down. It's a picture of him resting. In light of the aid that God has provided, the work that He has accomplished, the victory that He has attained in saving us, what should we do? We should praise Him. Our lives should be marked with joyful praise and thanksgiving. In fact, the sons of Korah don't just tell us once or twice to praise God. They tell us four times in one verse to praise God. To praise God. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. And then again in verse 7, sing praises with a skillful psalm. It's almost like they want to make sure that we catch that we should be singing praises to our God. You know, I can think of some instances in Scripture in which a word or a command is repeated three times, like uh, you know, God is said to be holy, holy, holy by the seraphim in Isaiah chapter 6. But here, the command to praise God is actually repeated five times. It's almost as if we're supposed to see that praising God is the most important thing that we can do in life. One commentator says this, he says, quote, This word is four times repeated in this short verse and shows at once the earnestness and the happiness of the people. They are the words of exultation and triumph. Feel your obligation to God. Express it in thanksgiving. End quote. See, God isn't just the sovereign king over the land and over the people of Israel. He's sovereign king over all the earth. He is sovereign king over all the universe. If we move to the moon and populate it, He's sovereign over it. If we move to Mars and populate Mars, He is sovereign over Mars. He's sovereign over all of creation, including the earth. And for that reason, we should praise Him how? 
with a skillful psalm, as the NASB 95 translates it. <clears throat> the NASB 2020 <clears throat> refers to it as a psalm of wisdom, which I think is probably a better translation. Uh, what it says uh, in, the, in the Hebrew is to praise him with a maskil, uh, which is a particular kind of psalm. Uh, psalms 42, 44, and 45 are all introduced in the, in the, the first verse as maskils, for example. And the general consensus is that a maskil is a teaching psalm or a psalm of wisdom, which is why the King James Version renders it, sing ye praises with understanding. That captures the essence of it. But here's the point. Isn't it interesting to see that God does not want our praise to just be mindless, to be something that engages our tongue but not our mind, or, or maybe just our minds, but not our, our hearts. No, He wants our praise to be filled with wisdom. He wants our praise to be filled with understanding. A uh, maskal is a psalm that teaches us something. And the reason that I find this so interesting is because if you turn on Christian radio, so much of what you hear on Christian radio has virtually nothing to teach us. How many songs that get played on Christian radio could be a song that's basically written to a boyfriend or girlfriend, but you just take out the boyfriend or girlfriend's name and you replace it with Jesus. And all of a sudden, it's a, it's a Christian song that makes it onto Christian radio. No, our worship should teach us something. It should teach us about God. It should remind us of ourselves. It should be music that humbles us, not something that makes us feel all great and mighty. It should proclaim God as great and mighty, but us as lowly sinners who need God's grace. It shouldn't just be a catchy tune, or our worship shouldn't just be a catchy tune that's written in such a way that it creates an entirely emotional response. Our worship should be intelligent. Our worship, our praise should be wise and it should be instructive. That is to say, it should be doctrinal. Now, to be upfront, I say this as someone who used to, once upon a time, really enjoy the stuff on the radio that I sometimes complain about now. Uh, but what happened is I came to realize uh, that I would go home on Sundays after church and I wouldn't be rehearsing or thinking so much about my sermon uh, anywhere nearly as much as I'd be going over the songs that we sang, kind of singing them in my mind as they reverberated through my mind. And the same goes for you. Uh, I, I understand, and, and I'm perfectly comfortable with the fact that 99.9% of the things I say, if, if we were to ask you in a year, what did he say about Psalm 47? You're not going to remember. And I'm totally cool with that. That's just, that's the way our minds work. You won't remember the things that I say 99.9% of the time, but you will remember a verse from a song that we sing a few times. This just underscores how important it is to have worship that is filled with truth, worship that is filled with doctrine, worship that is filled with the gospel. I don't know about you, but I need to preach the gospel to myself every day. Anybody else? Every day I need to be reminded of the gospel. Why? Because I've got a flesh nature and I am inclined to forget the gospel and to not live in light of it. I need to preach the gospel anew to my heart every day. And the easiest way to do that is with a song. How about this one? 
when Satan tempts me to despair, which he does, by the way, all the time, and tells me of the guilt within, I have plenty, and I know it. Nobody knows it better than I do. Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's the gospel put to song. That's the gospel, family. That's the kind of message that I want, that I need, bouncing around in my head throughout the day. That's the kind of praise that instructs. That's the kind of praise that God is pleased with. Do you see how this psalm instructs us to praise? So many things we could say about this psalm and the ways that it instructs us to praise. We're to praise joyfully. We're to praise congregationally. We're to praise God with our hearts, uh, with with passion, uh, with a voice of joy. We're to praise Him with thanksgiving. We're to praise Him often. We're to praise Him intelligently. All in all, this psalm is calling us, inviting us, instructing us to worship very holistically, not just with our minds, not just with our hearts, but with our whole selves. A type of praise that engages our whole being. God is worthy of nothing less than that kind of praise. And this brings us to the part of the psalm that reminds us that the day is coming when all of the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Let's continue, verses 8 and 9. It says, God reigns over the nations. God sits on His holy throne. The princes of the people have assembled themselves as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. God rules and reigns over all of the nations. We are not waiting for a day in which Jesus begins His rule and reign. That day has already come and gone. It was the day that Christ was resurrected. He is currently ruling. He is currently reigning. We aren't waiting for His rule and reign on earth to begin. It has already begun. Jesus Christ is even now the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There's a very popular end times view that denies this. In fact, it's the most popular end times view in our country. Uh, One commentator whom I love, by the way, and whom I know most of you know and love and revere as well, uh, and and have just the greatest admiration and respect for him, he writes this. He says, uh, quote, Ultimately, this psalm looks ahead to God's rule through Christ over all the earth, He goes on to say, in that glorious day, Christ will inaugurate his earthly reign over all the nations, end quote. That is absolutely wrong. Uh, Jesus reigns. Jesus rules. Even now. In preaching on Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verses 33 to 36 roughly, Peter said that Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God, and he says that God has made him both Lord and Christ. In other words, he is already exalted to the highest. Jesus said that all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him. 
Him, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, if that doesn't describe the position and the exaltation of a king who is already seated on his throne, ruling over all of creation, what would? What would? And, and if he's not already ruling over creation right now, who is? What we must see is that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords now. That He is ruling and He is reigning over His kingdom, which is not like the kingdoms of the world, but which is a spiritual kingdom. And yet, the testimony of Scripture is this, that the kings and the rulers of this world are rebels. And they hate and they defy and they work against His rule and reign. We see this specifically in Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, they oppose His rule and reign, and they are plotting, and they are scheming to overthrow Him. We read, Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? What's this vain thing that, they are, that they're trying to devise? A way to overthrow Christ. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take their counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, that's Christ, saying, let us tear our fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. So Psalm 2 recognizes that the kings and the rulers of the world absolutely hate God and hate His anointed, which is a reference to Christ. And God's response is to just laugh at their foolishness. They're no threat to him. They can't do anything against him. They can't devise anything against him. And so he he scoffs at them and he rebukes them and he admonishes them in his fury saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. He proceeds to warn them very sternly saying, now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that He may not become angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath may soon be kindled. And the psalm ends with this, How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. That Son is already reigning. That Son is Jesus Christ. He is Lord of lords. He is King of kings now. He is exalted as King now. See, God has a desired destination toward which He is pointing all of human history. And there is no king, and there is no ruler, and there is no prince, and there is no peasant who can prevent the fulfillment of God's plans and purposes from being fulfilled. And so, with that said, there are two ways that this can happen. It can happen by joyful, blessed compliance with our sovereign God and King, or it can happen by miserable, forced compliance. Either way, the day is coming when every tongue will confess and every knee will bow because Christ is Lord. Either way, His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so where do we fit into all this? Our job is to bring the good news of the gospel. The news that Christ reigns The news that Christ offers salvation and reconciliation to all who will humbly repent and believe in Him in order that by God's grace and by His Holy Spirit moving to convict as only He can, many might turn from their sin. Many might repent 
and turn to God through faith in his only son, his anointed, the anointed Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that they would know the joy of willful, blessed submission and obedience unto him. May we pray that the day come quickly when the princes of the people have assembled themselves as the people of the God of Abraham. What a day that'll be. Presidents, kings, queens, all of them bowing before the Lord. This is the end to which God is directing human history. In this age, Christ has sent us out as ambassadors for his kingdom to preach the good news of the gospel and to make disciples. And God is using our efforts to draw people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation to Christ. People from all walks of life. But the means that God has ordained for them to enter into this glorious kingdom over which Christ reigns supreme is the preaching of the gospel. The point here is that God as the great and sovereign Lord over all the earth and over all the universe, is worthy to be praised. And we do this through the Son, by the Spirit. Look around at the world. Do you see how much instability there is in the world around us today? Does it look like the world is falling apart? A lot of the time it does. Recession, talks of a depression coming. Stock market crashing, 401ks crashing. Nothing looks stable. But in light of the instability of this world, and in light of all the uncertainties that we see going on around us among the nations, may we rejoice and find assurance and comfort in knowing that our God reigns as the sovereign, supreme authority over all. And may we praise Him for who he is, what he's done, and what he know, what we know he will do. Let's pray. Our most gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the assurance that you reign supreme over all things, and that your plans and your purposes are unthwartable. Teach us, O Lord, to live our lives in light of these words, that Christ is King, indeed the King of kings and Lord of lords, and that all praise and all glory belongs to Him. Teach us, O Lord, to glorify You, to glorify Your Son in everything that we do as we look forward to this day when every earthly leader willfully and joyfully bows before him in compliance to his rule and reign. Until then, give us patience. Give us courage. Give us conviction to live our lives under his sovereign rule and reign and for his glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.